And good afternoon. Charles Moskowitz here. Steve Turley is my guest of uh, this segment. Steve is an um, internationally recognized scholar, speaker, and classical guitarist. He is a uh, professor um, in uh, theology, Greek, and rhetoric. Steve, thanks for joining me. Well, it's my pleasure, Charles. Thank you for having me. And Steve, you certainly have a gangbuster of a, a YouTube channel going. I've been watching it. Very, very good. Oh, cool. Thank you. Now, you bring up a very interesting premise in that you seem to believe that we are entering into a, you might say, renaissance of Western Judeo-Christian culture in the United States and maybe around the world. And I think you peg that to the, not to the pandemic itself, but that the pandemic is an opportunity to advance such culture. So we'll talk a little bit, if you will, about, about your premise there. Yeah, uh, thanks for that, Charles. Yeah, I, so what I saw prior to the pandemic were a number of dynamics that scholars tend to call post-security politics. It's a very interesting term. The nation state that's got structured, not to get too nerdy, but the nation state that got structured around the 17th century, um, that really in many respects, uh, like uh, Yoram Hazoni, the Israeli scholar, argues was more or less modeled after sort of a biblical cartography, you know, so the Israelites, the Hittites, the Canaanites, the Egyptians. Well, you know, prior, prior to the 17th century, in many respects, the world was kind of run by empires and, and imperial structures. And uh, after sort of the fall of the Holy Roman Empire, we started breaking up into what we now know as the nation state. And there were three advantages to the nation state. We had a sense of border security so we could stay safe from marauders and all. Uh, we had a sense of economic security so we can find jobs and provide for our families. And we had a sense of cultural security so that our religions, our customs, our traditions can be celebrated and revered and give our lives a sense of meaning so we can flourish as human beings. What globalism has done over, say, the last four decades or so, what scholars have noticed is it's sort of it's smashed those three securities. It's opened up our borders into basically a borderless world. It's uh, instituted what's known as an economic div uh, global division of labor, where manufacturing and industry has been shipped away from first world nations to so-called third world nations, China being the primary beneficiary of it. So we've lost all our manufacturing. And it tends to replace our customs, cultures, traditions, with lifestyle values. Increasingly, proponents of globalism see our cultures, customs, and traditions as hateful, as bigoted, as discriminatory, and the like. So, mm -hmm. in the face of all that, there's been a massive backlash. And that backlash is going on all over the world where populations are increasingly re-embracing their borders, their economic uh, manufacturing base, and their cultures, customs, and traditions as mechanisms of resistance against globalization. And in many respects, this pandemic is only, well, in, in frankness, it's hastening both dynamics. It's hastening the craziness that we see with uh, globalists and their autocratic tendencies, uh, but it's also hastening and intensifying uh, the blowback against that. Everybody now is closing their borders. Everybody wants to bring manufacturing back home and the like. Mm -hmm. You know, it seems to me that the portrayal of the idea of the nation state and national sovereignty 
involves a major case of psychological projection on the part of those who advocate globalism because the nation state is a very progressive institution. It's one that evolved over thousands of years, and it's one that, as you say, it protects a culture, it protects property, it protects, it's natural to a nation to, uh, to protect the life and the safety of its citizens and their futures. I mean, we all, it goes back to the Bible, really, and when they began to develop national borders after mankind tried to overthrow God in heaven at the Tower of Babel. You developed different languages, different cultures, different nations, and then the Bible, the Torah, goes on to give very specific borders for the nations and for all of the individual tribes of Israel. So right. the whole concept emerged. It's not new, and it's um, right. something that has advanced, and I think the greatest advancement in the great progression of the nation state was the development of the United States, yeah. in that we have, you know, we, we are the first nation to really ad- embrace the biblical idea that rights come from God and not from the state, that we're created in the image of God, we're not God, and that as such we have a limited sovereignty that we derive from God, and then we give a state certain powers that that protect and defend those rights. It's not, the state isn't the supreme, which is of course a, a biblical idea, but it's a radical idea, and it's an idea that was patented by the founding fathers of this republic. So you know, I think that the pandemic brings to fore the, the the necessity for things like property, and now we're protecting our own private properties more from this dread disease that is banging at the door. You know, That's the right. nation, exactly, and and that the nation is protecting itself by limiting people coming into the country because they might have the disease. And I think that even the European Union, which is very globalist, as you say, they've begun to protect their borders because that's what you do naturally. I mean, the animal kingdom understands this. A bird understands this. Try to you know, interfere with the bird's nest and see what happens. Dogs understand it. Go too close to a dog and see what happens. The idea of the nation state or the idea of the individual property is a natural thing. It's, it's, in, it's kind of hardwired into us. And this movement to erase it and to try to claim that it's an, anachronistic or something is actually an unnatural development. In many respects, what we're seeing now is simply a deference to the very uh, nationalist, populist, America first policies that Trump had been implementing for the past three years. If I told you, say, six months ago, that a North American leader, a leader of a North American nation, whose last uh, name starts with T-R-U, uh, <laughs> has closed all his borders, as um, has instituted a travel ban from Europe, uh, China, you name it, in an effort to, to seal those borders, you would be shocked that I told you that one would be a fellow by the name of Trudeau. But it's exactly mm-hmm. what's happened. Even globalists are behaving like Pat Buchanan right now. They're, even globalists are adopting this nationalist populism, and uh, and we're I mean the whole idea of of the the supply chain of farming out our uh, manufacturing for pharmaceuticals to China that's dead. That ain't coming back anytime soon. That's for sure. Right. Uh, you have Macron and France talking about bringing back industry to France. Japan has done the same thing as well as as starting to bring back their industry away from China. They start to see it as all economic nationalists do. They see the economy as a national security issue. 
We are a nation with an economy. We're not an economy that happens to be a nation that bows to it all the time. That's the very globalistic structure. And it's stunning. I, um, they did a study even before the pandemic. Breitbart talked about it and found that over 70% of the American public, when you polled them and asked them uh, pointed questions that were reflective of an America first, nationalist populist agenda, 70% of Americans agreed with it. The, the biggest, uh, the single most conservative demographic, racial demographic on border security are African-Americans. They have one of the highest, they have one of the high, yeah, sorry, my phone is- No, that's right. They have one of the highest um, rejections of immigration uh, of any population. And of course, because uh, they're adversely affected by, especially uh, illegal immigration with entry level jobs. Well, labor and minorities have always had an interest in reducing immigration because it because it, it cheapens the value of labor and it, it cuts back on opportunities for minorities who are trying to get a place at the table, so to speak. Right. And um, right. I think that we we can see from this the the situation that um, a, a nation state has the right to decide who enters the national home in the same way that you and I have a right to decide who enters our private home. It is a normal, natural thing. It's a good thing. You don't have to explain it. It's just uh, the ba- one of the basic building blocks of any nation. I mean, you know, you try to enter into a communist country, I mean, if you're not wanted. I mean, it's sort of, you know, the left is now criticizing Trump because they say he didn't do enough in terms yeah. of uh, stopping flights from China in the early stages of the of the pandemic. They say, oh, you still let people in. Well, hello, they were citizens. And and that uh, yeah. at the time, I remember they were screaming about the fact that, oh, he doesn't like Chinese men and women. Right, right. That's it's called xenophobia. Yeah. Exactly. So it's all very situational for them. Yeah, yeah. But, but the fact is that, you know, it's just a normal, natural thing for any sovereign nation to do. These are the functions of sovereign nations. And I think it does certainly put globalism on its heels. The latest thing I'm hearing is that now, you know, it's, it's sort of a last ditch, desperate attempt by the globalists that anyone who talks of criticizes globalism, this is a euphemism for anti Semitism. Yeah. Hello, I happen to be Jewish, putting that aside, but. You know, as a Jew, I mean, I mean, Israel is a is a sovereign nation. I mean, you know, the United States. I mean, it's not a. This isn't an anti-Jewish thing. It's you know, are Jews supposed to be globalists? Some of them are, some of them aren't. But you know, it's this isn't something that is is inherent in, in Jewish understanding at all. If anything, it's the nation state is is the primary idea. Exactly, and again, Yoram Hazoni has been one of the major voices. Uh, in that, a wonderful, wonderful uh, scholar. Um, he runs the um, National Conservative uh, Conferences. They just had theirs in Rome right before the pandemic. And of course, they had all those horrible anti-Semites like Viktor Orban and the like speaking there um, as they're all, of course, um, uh, laughing at such a, uh, an assessment. Yeah, one of the funny things, there's, um, there's some scholarship on this now where they're finding that, um, in point of fact, people like Gert Wilders and a number of nationalist populists in Europe are extremely pro-Israel because they are they see the the danger of Islam and and because Islam, in many respects, the Brazilian philosophy.
philosopher Olavo de Carvalho actually argues we have three globalisms going on right now. So the first globalism is the one we're all familiar with, the, the Western liberal globalism uh, that tends to be very economically driven. Uh, the, then you have the Chinese globalism, uh, which of course is, uh, is Marxist uh, driven. And that's, boy, that's getting, that's getting hit hard as we speak, thank God for that. But then you also have a religious globalism, which is the Islamic uh, globalism, particularly uh, via Iran and uh, their expansionist tendencies. They want to take over the world. They haven't been able to figure out how to do it. But uh, nevertheless, um, nationalist populists in Europe tend to recognize that. And they tend to see Israel as a beacon. Uh, and, and of course, Israel's probably, if when all is said and done, the most nationalist nation on the planet right now. In many respects, the uh, commentators are saying the left doesn't even exist in Israel. The best they have is a center. You know, the best is what's it, the, the uh, white and blue um, party that just got formed. Um, I mean, Likud is your, your consensus party. And then, of course, you have all the orthodox third parties, as it were. There's not even a left anymore, really, in, in Israel. So the nationalist populist right, particularly Trump, of course, uh, have looked at Israel as actually inspiration in the midst of all this, especially as they're trying to fight their particular uh, globalist enemy, which is uh, militant Islam. Right. And I, and I think that Israel has always reached out an olive branch of peace to Arab and Islamic countries saying, you know, we're, we're, an, we're an example of a nation that has created our own sovereignty. We, we got rid of the British occupiers, and we want to urge you to do the same for your own respective nations. So, you know, now you have Trump coming into office, and um, he's using some of the same rhetoric, of course, that was used by the Bushes and by Obama and Clinton, except he means it. And everyone knows yeah. that they, were, they didn't. They were full of it. They were just saying it for the bubbas, you know. He uh, talked right. about, you know, protecting the borders, and he's doing it. He talked about better trade relations with foreign countries, and he's doing that. And um, economic re relations that favor the United States and our labor and our industry, and he's doing that. So that, to me, is the thing that is leading the globalists to really take a very strong-fisted attempt to have him removed from office. And that includes several attempts at impeachment. I yeah. think there might be more coming down the pike. I mean, I pray for Trump. Yeah. This is... a uh, the enemies of Trump are the enemies of, of our sovereign nation right now. And right. I think we need to understand that. And I say the same thing to liberals who may not be aware of this and even leftists who are, are not cognizant of it, because we all have a life in this country. We all have a family and we want to have a future. And do we want to have that future under our own? I mean, it's dem a sovereign nation that's democratic. You right. know, that means that you right. as an individual, as a community, have more say and more control over your own life and destiny, not some foreign, unelected, you know, faceless bureaucracy that's either in the form of an international form of governance or an international corporate form of governance. It doesn't matter. The point is that it, they have to be held accountable by a constitution and by elected officials who we elect to represent our interests. It's so interesting because even Bill Maher, you know, an ultra leftist like Bill Maher mm -hmm. recognizes that if you actually want to have a conversation, a deep, meaningful political conversation, cultural conversation, you have to go to the right. 
The left is almost, it seems, incapable of doing that today, particularly the media, the mainstream, uh, I like to call Marxist media. Um, if you want to have a reasonable conversation, John Stossel found this out, Stossel being very libertarian. So being a libertarian, you know, he's very liberal in many things, also conservative and others. He found liberals uh, shocked and, and absolutely um you know, offended by the things he was saying, whereas conservatives are like, oh, that's interesting. Let's chat about that. That's why we mm. have the talk radio everywhere. I mean, talk radio is by definition 99% conservative because we love uh, reading and thinking and reflecting and then conversio, having a conversation because we're not afraid. We, we, we have a sense that there's truth out there. We're all trying to get to it. And uh, we're confident that we've uh, right. we feel a, a certain you know sense that we've we're really pretty close to it here. And when you have an entire political movement that says no, and in a anything to the right of us is by de definition taboo. It's by definition now going to be defined as hateful, bigoted, homophobic, anti-Semitic, xenophobic, and on and on. And therefore, it's it's to be. It's to be dismissed, rejected, and excommunicated. The cancel culture. How is that even remotely democratic? How is that not author the very author authoritarianism they try to denounce us for? It's we're the ones who want democracy. We're the ones that want referendums. We are the ones who want more say of what happens in our nation. And we want to do it through con conversation and right. normal democratic discourse. So it is, it's crazy, but that's why we get to have these great conversations. That's right. I mean, it's a major case, again, of projection because the left is very solitary and conformist in its views. It's, their, their arguments have more to do with degrees of how fast they want to go or personality disputes, but not on ideology. I mean, the ideology, whether they're conscious of it or not, tends to be the same. Um, the, their hatred for Trump is that he's actually challenging that view. And the, right. the hatred in the media, and you talk about this on your on your YouTube channel, Steve, and, and you do so quite eloquently, it is really unprecedented. It's really open to the point where they really are no longer professional. I mean, they, they'll do a story based upon one anonymous source, which is unthinkable before Trump. And then, of course, the next day when it's disproved, they then take it down and go on to the next one. And then, and it's just this constant barrage. I mean, and the hatred is so palpable. I mean, I, I was listening to Michael Smirkanish, who's a big time left of center radio talk show host in Philadelphia. He's been there for about 30 years. And early in the administration, when the atmosphere was almost like Frankensteinian, I mean, people were showing up with, with, with torches and the, the rage was just on the street. He made one mild comment that praised President Trump about something he had done. And it wasn't even a big deal. It was some technical thing. And he says, you know, we have to give a little credit. And then he got such hate mail and people were going to boycott his sponsors. I mean, people that had been sponsoring him for 20 years. And it was so bad that he had to back down and he had, he had almost like retracted. The atmosphere is, is like mm -hmm. it's, it's like a carnival. It and I, I, I think that it might have lessened a little bit because a lot of people, you know, I mean, the average person who dislikes Trump is not like that. They have legitimate complaints. I get that. Or they don't like his personality. That's fine. But this derangement 
is something that I think what they're weighing and balancing now is how far do they want to go with that? Because if they expose it any further, it's going to sink them. So uh, what do you see happening with the, you know, the upcoming election? I mean, you know, I'm actually very concerned, mm-hmm. um, not, ju- not just because of the pandemic, but because of the forces that have arrayed against Trump. I mean, these people aren't going to take no for an answer. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, um, I think the way to situate the election, at least the way I'm doing it, is to have a healthy balance between recognizing we are in uncharted territory right now, especially with this pandemic, and we're, we're going to have to see the economic fallout from it over the next few months. So we're going to have to see what's going on there. But also to look at it in terms of the patterns uh, that have been pretty prevalent, uh, certainly over the last hundred years of presidential elections. Now, for that, I tend to be uh, very impressed with what's called the primary model by Mm -hmm. Helmut Norpoth of the University of Stony Brook, because it's an algorithm that has studied elections since 1912, which is the first year that the candidates had to go through a primary. And what he found is he found a pattern. The, the pattern he found is that the primary is the election in microcosm. So you look at the candidate who wins the most votes, particularly in the early primaries, you plug that data in to this algorithm, and then out comes the, the algorithm's determined winner. And he found it lined up with every single winner all the way up to the 2016. Uh, I think there was one exception. I forget where that was, but that was the pattern. There was a that's your ultimate poll, right? Your poll numbers. Who tends to win those elections? Who tends to win those elections are uh, usually the incumbent. It's a twofold pattern. It's usually the incumbent. So if you've had the same party in power for two administrations, you know, nine times out of 10, we go to another party. It's uh, we swing back and forth, certainly since FDR and Truman. We've been we've been doing that pendulum swing pretty consistently. Jimmy Carter was the one interruption with that. He had one mm-hmm. term. And that and also even, Bush Sr. Well, Bush, the uh, so what he says is Bush Sr. Technically, technically is the third term of Reagan. OK, so. Bush Sr. getting voted in was the disruption of it. That's the interesting thing. So mm-hmm. you had 12 years of a Republican administration there. So you almost had a little bit of a, a, a going back to the FDR Truman era to a certain extent. So um, so that so Trump had that going for him. And then when he ran the numbers for the primary, Trump is setting records in terms of voting turnout in Iowa, in the caucus, in New Hampshire. He got three times the amount that uh, Obama got the last time an incumbent was running for re-election in 2012. So he ran the numbers uh, for Biden versus Trump in terms of the primaries. And he gives, based on that, plus with the uh, the pendulum swing, he gives Trump a 91% chance of winning re- re-election. Now, he is saying this is unprecedented territory, but if it plays out the way it's been playing out for the last 100 years, we should see Trump in a blowout. We'll have to see. So I know what, what you mean. I'm with you a, a thousand percent. I'm scared, too. There's just so much going against him and everything like that. Um, but uh, Norpoth ha- is standing by his prediction, and he was right, right in 2016. Yeah. Did he do this before the pandemic? So he did it before the pandemic. And then if you go to the website, primarymodel.com, 
He has a caution on there. He says, now that we had this outbreak, I'm going to be watching to see if there's a massive disruption in Trump's poll, poll numbers. If people, if he goes down to 15%, he'll probably say, all right, forget it. My primary model isn't going to be applicable to this anymore. So he's been watching the poll numbers. And of course, I mean, his polls go up and down, but of course the, the Gallup polls have been pretty impressive. Uh, Trump has positioned himself as a wartime president uh, and his support among Republicans has remained absolutely solid. So his support among uh, independents is around that, that 50%, 60% mark. So he seems to be doing, uh, so Helmut Norpolt has since said, yeah, uh, the one thing he said is we just got to the last thing we got to watch out for is just the economic data that comes out this summer. If we're going into this election with 20 percent unemployment, all bets are off. But if he can bring that back down, we can open up the country again, which you've noticed blue states don't want to do. Interesting. Right. Enough, mm -hmm. right? So I think they, they know that's going to be that's it's going to really hinge on that. Well, you know, it's it's all very unknown because the situation is so unprecedented. And I guess the question is, are they going to be able to hang blame for this on Trump? Are they going to are they going to parrot the communist Chinese line and do that? Um, I think that that, in my opinion, we should be grateful. And I'm, I'm I please I pray to God that, that Trump's president during this thing, because if we had had the, the liberals and the left in office, We'd probably have concentration camps right now for people yes, who step off the line. You know, imagine. take a look at some of these states. I mean, like Oregon is now, you know, moving the uh, the opening date up to August first. I mean, it's uh, and they only have like a couple of hundred cases, so it's not. It's it it does show the authoritarian nature here, and we could go through other states. My own state of Massachusetts actually has been somewhat moderate so far. Okay, yeah. I guess Vegas be a Republican governor. I don't know, but um. You know, it's not as bad as, as Michigan or as some of these other states where they were arresting people for going to yeah. church. So, yeah. you know, I think that all of the all of it, however, remains to be seen. I think that I don't want to sound too tin hat here, but I wonder if they're trying to damage the economy as a way to stop Trump. I mean, I, I, sure. I know that sounds far fetched, but given the 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 lowness of this, I mean, you know, impeaching him and doing all these other things, and all these, frankly, these conspiracies. I wouldn't put it past them. I mean, no. I just, you know, my way of thinking, I mean, they'll do anything. So, because without talking just about Donald Trump, we're talking about, as we started, Steve, a global movement mm -hmm. that is, uh, which people are beginning to wake up. They're getting really woke, to use the term. <laughs> in the realizing, good way, right? Yeah, in the, in the real sense. And they're realizing that they, they don't want to, they want a government that protects their rights not takes them away and decides to grant them on whim and that they don't want to have this global entity that doesn't care about the individuals and the communities in their own nations. I mean, these things are basic common sense. And I think that the international community, what we talk about the globalists, they don't want people to wake up to this and they right. want to stop it. So I wouldn't put anything past them. Right. No, I agree with you. I do. Unfortunately, I have to. I mean, just look what they tried to do to Brett Kavanaugh. I mean, that was oh, insane. That and was at, and look at what's happening now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. And I know. That's the joke. Elizabeth uh, Warren, you're always a hypocrite. You know, she's coming. Yeah, out and yeah. Says, there you go, Elizabeth. And I'm from, I'm from Connecticut, by the way. I'm a fellow New Englander as well. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I I know. Be careful what you weaponize. It's always going to end up being used back against you. And uh, yeah, that's. 
uh, you just look at what they were willing to do to destroy in order to stop. And well, I mean, it comes down to exactly what you said, Charles. You had a great distinction. We can disagree. We're all for disagreement. That's fine. It's derangement that we have an issue with. Exactly. Exactly. All right, Steve Turley, let my viewers and listeners know where they can read your excellent work, where they can see your excellent YouTube program. They can go, so if they want to see just the whole panoply of stuff, go to turleytalks.com. It's my last name, T's and Tom. U-R-L-E-Y talks, like TED Talks, turleytalks.com. And then just uh, all you have to do on YouTube to check out the YouTube channel is just uh, punch in Dr. Steve Turley. It'll take you right to the page. All right, Steve. Listen, I want to thank you for joining me this afternoon. Thank you, Charles. 